Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Tyra Oro, a master's student of Japan Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a student assistant at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. It's my pleasure to introduce Jonathan Punterberg as our guest speaker today. Jonathan is a PhD fellow at the Department of Global Studies at Aarhus University and is currently a visiting researcher at NIAS. With a background in general linguistics and Japanese studies, his research has generally focused on the history of Japanese grammar writing. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Tara. In today's episode, we will be discussing your PhD project, which is titled If the Shoe Fits, Yamada Yoshio and the Birth of Neo Traditionalist Linguistics in Japan. Now, from your title, I already have a lot of questions I would like to ask you, but we have to start somewhere. And um, you say that you examined the ideological debate surrounding language and linguistics in the early 20th century Japan. So perhaps I can ask you, what does this mean? What does it mean? Um, well, we are in the early parts of the 20th century uh, or the very late parts of the 19th century. There's a flurry of activity surrounding a Japanese grammar writing. Nobody's really sure what the future of the Japanese language looks like, what it should look like, and consequently also what Japanese grammar should look like. So in this time period, a lot of people disagree over the nature of the Japanese language, Japanese grammar, and also Japanese language research, its theory and its methods. And that's what I'm interested in. Okay, and how uh, exactly did you get interested in this topic? I mean, as a, a Danish uh, person living here in Denmark and... Uh... Well, I started as did you at uh, studying Japanese studies. <laughs> <laughs> Good place um, to start. And, um, as a student of uh, Japan studies, you um, get these language courses. And I think this is not just for people studying Japanese, uh, but any listener who try to study a, a East Asian language will know that will some point in their studies have get this feeling that the language that they're studying doesn't really work within the framework that they're being taught. I remember as a first year Japanese stu- Japanese um, studies student being uh, told uh, to look for the subject in the Japanese sentence and I couldn't really find where was the subject? How was the subject marked grammatically? So I, I, I became interested in, you know, how do the Japanese describe their own grammar? Because the way that I'm being taught Japanese grammar didn't really make sense to me. So I was curious to see how the Japanese described their, their, their own language. And then I found out uh, later in my career that um, the Japanese sort of grammar writing is actually re- relatively recent. It didn't really begin until the 19th century. So um, I think this is, that's when my interest began, I think, in my own studies of of Japanese. I see there are several things in what you're mentioning there that I can also recognize. (laughs) So you mentioned that there are all these debates and disagreements around uh, the Japanese language and grammar in this period. So which debate is it that you're focusing on? Well, maybe the best way to sort of uh, approach this is to sort of think of the the genesis of modern language study and modern language research in Japan. So 
In the late 1880s, the head of the Imperial University in Tokyo decides that it would be a good idea to have a linguistics course for the students so that Japanese scholars may use Western methods of, of uh, writing about language and studying language uh, to better get a better sense of, of Japanese. And this leads to the establishment of the linguistics uh, course at the Tokyo Imperial University. But at this point, there are there's no Japanese scholars who can teach this. So you have, uh, this was a very common phenomenon, phenomenon at the time, but you have um, hired foreigners who taught Japanese university students in these European disciplines. But of course, in, in other situations, you'd have Europeans teaching Japanese about law, about chemistry, philosophy, all these European traditions of, of, of knowledge. But here in the linguistics course, a British man, Basil Hall Chamberlain, who's also a very famous uh, Japanologist, is actually teaching Japanese university students in Japanese grammar, which is this sort of a weird, from today's perspective, this sort of a weird image to have this little, you know, class of Japanese uh, university students being taught their own language by a foreigner. But the reason that Chamberlain did this all, the reason he was asked to do this was that there was no standard framework of discussing uh, the Japanese grammar at the time. They had to make one. And um, so the first, you know, generation of uh, Japanese grammarians and uh, Japanese linguists from this generation, they were they borrowed their methodology from the West because although there was a an indigenous Japanese tradition of language scholarship, it wasn't systematic. It wasn't comprehensive um, in the way that uh, the European grammarians were writing grammars. So you could say the beginning of Japanese grammar writing in, in, in the modern sense, in the late 19th century, uh, was sort of uh, led by a Western example. And what I'm interested in is the counter-reaction to that. Because inevitably, this idea of, of, um, of trying to use a uh, grammatical framework based on European languages, on the Japanese language, is going to you're going to eventually find some, some, some things that are not going to work as well. And um, obviously some, some Japanese scholars felt that way and wanted to sort of get rid of the foreign influence on Japanese grammar writing. So I think that's really, really interesting. And my next question is then, what was the counter-reaction? There were many different because it, I don't want to oversimplify this um, this field um, and uh, the debates that happened, but I'm focusing on the person who who I think is the most interesting in in this country. Actually, his name is Yamada Yoshio. He's also in the title, and he had a very different background from the first generation of, of Japanese grammarians. He was not university educated. Uh, he didn't even have a, a middle school education. He only ever finished elementary school. So he was very different from this first generation of, of uh, modern Japanese grammarians, you could say. He was a school teacher 
and worked in different schools in rural Japan. He, he worked at Hyogo, he worked in Nara, and then he also worked in the Kochi in the, on the island of Shikoku. So those who are those listeners who are familiar with Japanese geography will know that he he worked in a lot of places very far from Tokyo as a as a middle school grammar teacher. But whilst he was living and working in these remote villages, he wrote this mammoth Japanese grammar book, uh, which is 1500 pages long. I've still, in my own work, I've never seen a grammar that is uh, as dense as that book. And he wrote it by himself as a sort of a challenge to the to what he believed was the mainstream opinion that that the grammarians of the time were over relying over relying on um, on Western grammatical theory. So he begins this book by saying that contemporary grammarians were whittling the foot to make the shoe fit, uh, i.e. they were forcing Japanese into a grammatical framework that didn't fit for it and that, you know, uh, that the Japanese should make their own way of, develop their own way of talking about grammar. And in order to do this, he argued they should return to their to the native Japanese grammatical tradition and sort of renounce the, the, the Western influence. And interestingly, Yamada sort of, uh, this, this book that he published, it didn't really cause any fuss in the beginning. I mean, he was also a completely unknown figure and, uh, you know, I don't think 1500 page grammars, you know, the potential readership is probably not that big, but eventually his book became a bestseller in the 1930s and his ideas became incredibly influential during the later period when 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 Japanese linguistics sort of tried to assert itself as uh, meaningfully different from uh, Western linguistics. So in my thesis, I sort of argue that Yamada took the first step for, for the Japanese language sciences to sort of assert its independence from, from Western influence, you could say. So returning to your title, you mentioned the birth of neo-traditionalist linguistics. So can you explain what you mean by neo-traditionalist and what you mean by the birth of neo-traditionalist linguistics in Japan? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, let's see if I can answer this in an adequate way. Yeah, it's the, the in Japan bit is a little um, important here, I think, because I I tried, it, it did, originally, I wanted to call it Japanist linguistics. But I changed this terminology because I, during the course of the project, I found out that this sort of reaction against uh, Western linguistics didn't just happen in Japan. It happened in all kinds of places. It happened in China, uh, similar things happened in Korea. And uh, if I understand things correctly, also now in Nepal and in India, there are uh, scholars who wish to sort of return to a traditional Indian or traditional Nepali way of thinking about language. Essentially, what's important about neo-traditionalism is that before the advent of Western or European uh, or Anglo-European um, uh, linguistics, there was a tradition of language scholarship in Japan. 
But compared to the level of sophistication that that the 19th or late 19th century uh, Japanese scholars could evidently see in these Anglo-European theoretical texts, their own traditions seem primitive. So it was sort of abandoned by the, you could say, scholarly elites of the time. And neo-traditionalism, I think, is, or at least the way I conceptualize it, is sort of a reaction against that abandonment of tradition. It's saying, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We, there is something in our own tradition of writing about language, theorizing about grammar, studying language that we can keep and that can be modernized so that we still have our particular way of doing language research that is not just borrowed from from Europe, that we have our own identity. I think the, the quintessential, and this is why I call it the birth of uh, neo-traditional linguistics in Japan, I don't think actually that Yamada is the perfect example of this sort of neo-traditionalism. Probably the best example is uh, it's a scholar called Tukira Motoki, who followed sort of a generation after uh, Yamada. Tukida <laughs> famously published his manifesto about what Japanese linguistics should be as a sort of antithesis to uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, who is this commonly known as the, the father of modern linguistics. But Tukida felt that Saussure approached language in a wrong way and that language should be conceptualized as a process rather, rather than a system. Without getting uh, too technical, this sort of Japanese challenge of, of a European way of talking about language, that was Tukieda's whole project. Interestingly, <laughs> Tukieda published his, uh, his uh, theoretical sort of manifesto in the first week of December 1941. So uh, about the same time as Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. So it's that's this peak of Japanese uh, self-assuredness, you could say. <laughs> but anyway, so what I'm arguing in my thesis is that Yamada sort of was the first to plant this idea in the Japanese intellectual imagination, you could say, to have we Japanese can have our own way of doing things. We can have our own way of formulating linguistic theory. We can have our own way of studying language. We don't need the Westerners and all their knowledge to do this. So that that, that rejection of Western knowledge, ostensible rejection of, uh, of Western knowledge is, I think, what he represents the beginning of that, the birth of that. But I think it's important here to mention that um, in my thesis, I tried to show that Yamada's entire project was rhetorical more than it was substantial in the sense that Yamada wanted to appear as if he sort of um, was speaking on behalf of Japanese linguistic tradition. But if you look closely at how he interpreted these texts, they are very much colored by his having read uh, Western, particularly German, uh, grammatical theory. 
So, for instance, uh, Yamada is very famous for reinterpreting this uh, Edo period scholar, Motori Norinaga, who wrote many of the first sort of Japanese descriptions of morphosyntactical uh, structures of verb, verb inflections and stuff. He's very famous for, for, um, for that. Yamada reinterpreted Motori Norinaga to say that he was sort of the progenitor of uh, Japanese uh, sentence theory. But if you look closely, that entire reading is uh, is based on uh, German theory. So, so Yamada wanted to appear as if he was a very, quote-unquote, Japanese thinker. But in fact, he was also extremely influenced by Western scholarship even if he didn't like to appear that way. <laughs> I see. So all the perspectives you have now given us tempts me to return to your introduction to this podcast where you spoke about the frustrations or challenges that there can be for us learning a new language, in this case Japanese, where the framework doesn't always fit the language we're trying to learn very well. So what implications did this reactionary turn have on the way you perceive studying Japanese language, for example, today? Uh, that's a good question, actually. The thing is, so if I look back on myself wanting to find a different way of describing Japanese grammar than the one I saw in my textbooks, well, I certainly have found some, but what's sort of ironic is that Yamada was not writing Japanese grammar for my sake or for foreign learners' sake. He wanted to have a Japanese grammatical system that was for the Japanese themselves. And he even, he doesn't spell it out specifically or explicitly, I should say, but in reading his works, you get a very clear sense that he believes that it's impossible for a foreign learner to ever really understand Japanese grammar. That's essentially what he's saying. Uh, we are sort of condemned to be on the outside and not, you know, attaining the, the sort of the true nature underneath the Japanese language. And then uh, the worst part is sometimes I feel that he's right. <laughs> <laughs> because, no I was matter. going to ask, is he right? <laughs> I've studied Japanese for years and years and years, and I never, you know, I never feel completely, you know, I always feel a little bit, I always feel constrained. I never managed to reach this level of fluency that I dreamed of when I started out. So maybe he is right in some way, <laughs> uh, even though I don't want to believe it. I don't, I don't, I don't share that view that, that uh, foreigners uh, can't understand the language. I, you know, the same with the Danish language is, uh, they also say it's difficult, but I don't think it's possible for foreigners to learn it, you know, um, but it's an interesting, I think it, it, um, it says a lot about where the native speaker or native speakers or, or in general sort of their role in creating not just descriptions of their own languages, but also in, in, in formulating linguistic theory as a whole. The history of linguistics is, you know, still predominantly focused around uh, Anglo-European thinkers. Um, and I think... 
having these uh, Japanese, whether they be Japanese or you know, or, or Chinese or, or I don't know Turkish, uh, <laughs> these these other perspectives um, on some grammatical phenomena or, or, or anything else might make us uh, we might end with a little bit more of a global street of uh, linguistics. Certainly, that would be amazing <laughs> if we could ever reach that um, end goal. So, Jonathan, seeing as you are actually finishing your PhD and handing it in very soon, um, what are your future plans from here? Very, very soon. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, if I said anything um, that uh, having spent these three years thinking about this for a very long time, it's kind of daunting to have this idea that uh, going public about <laughs> all the thoughts <laughs> that I've had relating to this, but um, I would like to uh, publish something quite soon. It would be interesting to explore this phenomenon of neo-traditionalist linguistics a little bit further to see. I've read that there were some Chinese linguists who did have similar feelings towards Western linguistics and wanted to to make their own, you know, academic discipline. But uh, how similar were those histories to to what I found? I, I would like to know that. Is it just uh, this thing that Yamada, having found out how Yamada was more rhetorically traditional than uh, substantially or whatever? I'd like to know if this was this just him, or is this uh, when going back to traditional quote unquote uh, ways of 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 thinking about language, is it even possible to sort of escape this modern uh, understanding of language as a system? Is it is it possible to rid ourselves of these knowledge categories that we've been brought up with? I think that's an interesting question. So I'd like to explore it further, maybe. Well, I'm very optimistic um, that uh, about that idea, and uh, also certainly very optimistic that you will um, get some uh, published articles about after our conversation. To <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, we'll see. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.